pouring down on me, beating down on me to the point it was slightly painful. But it was, um, I, I just had a really cool moment in that waterfall. It was just sitting there, I actually prayed for about five or 10 minutes as, as this was just pouring down on me. It was just, uh, I was just blown away at the, the, the creativity and the beauty of this place and just these natural springs, and this natural creation that he made and had a really cool moment with God there. And then uh, another one of my favorite pictures recently was from our first mission trip to Athens. Uh, and this is a trip of our group that went into uh, one of the camps one day. So I was not actually with this group when they went in. But I, I stare at this picture all the time. I, and what I look at, I look at the eyes and the faces. Uh, I know some of their stories, but I can just see, you can see uh, there's, there's some looks in there that you can see the worn, like brokenness that they've experienced. You can see the hope and the joy, like this little girl down here. You can see like there's hope in there in the midst of tragedy. And I just look at that and it reminds me of how God has wired human beings and it, with this incredibly unique spirit to find hope and to joy and joy and to persevere through tragedy and pain and how we have an opportunity. We get to come alongside them and be with them and walk with them in that. And um, I'm, I'm amazed that God wired others to wanna be with others who are in pain. I think that's beautiful. That is art. And I'm inspired by that. And so that's just a few of the examples. Uh, and, and I'm going to read. I'm an English major, so you're going to get some poetry later. Uh, but we'll save that for the end. Uh, but I want to start today by reading our scripture for today is Psalm 139, which I think is uh, poetic and, and, art, and, and full of uh, an artistic description of creator and created. And so I think it just reminds us of the beauty and the artistry of creation. So I want to read the whole psalm here. It's on page 433 in your Bible, if you want to follow along with me. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. 
Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So Psalm 139. Uh, You'll notice that last part when he talks about hating. I'm not going to go into the context, but this is the Old Testament. Things are a little different now with Christ. But I think that that, just a glimpse of the appreciation that David had for God as artist and what he had created in in uh, humankind. So I found that the deeper I, I try to travel into the kingdom of Christ, there are words and phrases that need to be reclaimed and retaught. There are words that are used in the English language that we don't really have a, a grasp, uh, an under, a true understanding of when it comes to the perspective of Christ. So, for example, one of those words would be love. So in the English language, there's only one word for love. In Hebrew, uh, I think there's three, and I think in Greek, there's six. And they have these different types, these different words to, to describe different specific points of love. So when we talk about when Christ refers to biblical love, it's a lot different than what dictionary.com says about our version of love. And there's other buzzwords and phrases in our culture that stir up passion and often in an unexpected, unexpected and negative way. So for example, anybody play cards where trump cards are involved, where you trump someone's suit? Have you played that in the last four or five months and when someone trumps you, does that cause like a twitch, like when you hear that name or that word? All right, there's, there's a negative reaction to, to the word trump now because it's in the headlines every day. I actually talked to someone the other day who said they were playing cards with someone and they renamed trump cards something else. They couldn't handle it. They're like, we well, got to just, this word is now eliminated from this card game. So that's just a, an example of a word or a phrase that strikes up a negative connotation that we need to reclaim. And uh, there's another word uh, that we need to reclaim and it's a phrase we use and it gets thrown out a lot and I think it makes me think of Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, this old 80s movie. You've seen the meme. All right. You keep using that word, but I don't think you know what it means. All right. I said it wrong. I do not think it means what you think it means. But he says that, and I think about that all the time when I see a word or a, buzz, a buzzword. I'm like, hey, that word keeps getting used, but I don't really think you understand what it means. And the phrase we're going to talk about today is pro-life. Because that, that phrase gets thrown around a lot. What does that word or that phrase actually mean? Most people hear that phrase from an angle of propaganda. That's where they've come to identify and define this from, from, from this base propaganda. And Brian Zahn, one of my favorite pastors who I'm going to quote today, he said, you need to make a distinction between propaganda and art. Propaganda cannot risk being honest. Ooh, just sit, let that sit. That is brilliant. Propaganda cannot risk being honest. So when we hear the phrase pro-life, we need to hear it, view it, and appreciate it as a phrase describing how the artist feels about the art, not from a place of propaganda, how the creator feels about his creation. It needs to be reclaimed from the fires of propaganda and retaught and reclaimed and, and re-understood for what it truly means in its essence. So I'm going to quote Brian again. Uh, we could jump all over scripture to define what pro-life is, but Brian summed it up in a tweet, and I really like it. So I'm just going to use his tweet here. Here's what he says pro-life means, and I happen to agree with him. Pro-life is anti-death penalty, environmental exploitation, mass incarceration, nuclear weapons, poverty, unaffordable health care, war, and abortion. None of those strike a chord with anybody, do they? All right, that's not going to make anybody uncomfortable. I just want to leave that on screen. 
all of that, that vast array of controversial subjects of what it actually means to be pro-life. Let's just dwell on that for a second because we can all look at that and look at those, and I'm pretty sure we're going to find at least one or two of those who are like, ah, no, I don't agree, or that, that makes me uncomfortable. There's tension there. But hey, when we walk with Christ, we engage the tension. All right, we, we don't pretend to be harmonious. We're, we're willing to wrestle with what it means to follow Christ. So do me a favor. We're going to keep this on screen for a few minutes while we talk through this because I want all of us to just kind of stare at these and think about and dwell upon what it means to be anti-life, what it means to be now pro-life. So one area of concern, we can tackle this from a lot of different angles. We could talk like quantum physics and science and, and philosophy. I'm going to talk about money. Let's just talk about something we all use and we're all aware of. All right, money. When I look at that list, when I look at anything in life, uh, I have a tendency to question everything. I, if there's smoke, there's fire. It's kind of like if, if there's a fire, you're supposed to touch the doorknob to see if it's hot, see if there's something dangerous behind there, or test the water before you jump in to see if it's warm enough for you to swim in. This is what we're going to do with some of these. And I find that one of the practices that we can use to identify the, or to look at from an angle to look at this stuff from is if there's money to be made from this practice. So if you look at each one of those lists <clears throat> or each one of those items, is there money to be made off of those? And I, I'm of the opinion that it's a resounding yes in every category up there that there's money to be made. It's a contractual relationship. There's a service, there's a power, or there's money exchanged with any of those occurring. So the end game for a lot of those is profit. So in my opinion, when you, when you do that, uh, best case scenario, there's money to be made. Worst case, worst case scenario, the entire relationship is built on greed and exploitation. All right? And when we look at humanity, in my humble opinion, um, potentially controversial opinion, all of these ignore the beauty and artistry of humanity. And that's a problem. So I think science backs that up. All, I think all of them are built on exploitation and greed. That's anti-life. So I would say, I don't, you don't even need to believe in God to agree with that. You don't. It helps, I think. But you don't need to to believe in God, to recognize that contractual relationships are problematic. And when you play them out to the very end, they can be anti-life. They can be exploitive. They can be built on greed. They can take advantage of people or things that are meant to be sacred and honored and cherished, like the earth or people, for example. God has blessed us with reason, with science, with logic, and we can look at these things and, and, and come to a conclusion like, even without God, we've got the, the necessary wiring he's given us that to understand what is good and what is bad. We have a general, most people, that's not an absolute statement. I think most people have a general feel for that. Uh, there's a word in scripture called common grace, or not in scripture, but uh, a phrase called common grace that refers to this natural wiring that we have to understand that contractual relationships can be problematic. So let's look at it though with God. Let's, let's walk with him through what Jesus thinks about a contractual relationship. So John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Um, this is when he clears the temple. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, major Jewish holiday, people came from all over, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So 
what this means is when people would come to the temple to worship, they would travel long distances for Passover and they would come into the temple area to worship. In Judaism, though, uh, you needed a dove or sheep to sacrifice as an act of worship. Or you needed to exchange your Roman coins for Jewish coins so you could give an offering as an act of worship. And there were people that saw this as an opportunity to make money, to exploit. So they would hang out right on the edge of the temple courts where people would walk up to getting ready to worship. And it was literally like an exploitive blockade of you can't get into worship unless you buy something to sacrifice or if you exchange your money. And they would have, you know, radically increased prices. So it's like when you go to a baseball game and you get a Bud Light, it's like $9 for a Bud Light? Like what the? Like it's an exploitive relationship. Or you go to the movies and you get a bucket of popcorn for $11 or whatever it is. It's an exploitive contractual relationship. That's what they were doing. Let's see how Jesus felt about it. So he made a whip out of cords and he drove all from the temple course, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Basically like, what gives you the right? And here's Jesus saying to them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus destroyed the notion of contractual relationships with this act of foreshadowing. He cleared the courts and then he cryptically announced, I'm the new temple and I cannot be destroyed. He announced there's going to be a new way of humanity interacting with one another. That's why I'm here. So his crucifixion and his resurrection announced the beginning of the end of contractual and exploitive relationships. So we, we understand, maybe not agree with, that there's problems with that whole list. Uh, but if we understand there are problems up there, we need a solution. You don't, need, you don't necessarily need Jesus to understand there's a problem with exploitive relationships or contractual relationships, but we need a way forward. We need someone to show us how to operate in a different manner. And that's what I think Christ gives us. He shows us what it lives to, or what it means to actually live pro-life. He redefines the term. And I would contend to even my non-believing friends, that's where we really need Jesus. We, we need him to show us how to operate, how to treat the earth and how to treat human beings. Because it's not in... Uh, we're not completely uh, able to do that on our own. All right, we, we all, there, there is no such thing as objectivity. Uh, that you may have heard that in some sort of philosophy or some enlightenment stuff. There's, there's no such thing as objectivity. Everything is subjective. All of us have blinders on. All of us have a way of looking at life. And we need someone who has a holistic view of how we are meant to operate. And that's where I would contend that we need Christ to show us the way forward, to show us what it means to live in a pro-life way. Because in Christ's kingdom, we don't live by contractual relationships. We live by covenant relationships. This is the new way of living. This is what it means to be pro-life, to honor God's most masterful creations, like the earth and humanity. So what's a covenant relationship? We're going to start throwing this biblical word around. We need to understand 
what it means. So covenant, I heard um, Scott McKnight describe, covenant is a rugged commitment to the life, love, and well-being of another. It's unconditional. Love is given with no expectation of return. There's no contract. It is a consistent outpouring and advocacy for someone else. This is how, this is what pro-life actually looks like. And I think it's unique to the kingdom of Christ. I don't see anything else like it. I think it's a really powerful way to live. So practically, I'll sum it up with four points. Everybody likes bullet points. So we'll start with number one. It's a rugged commitment, meaning no, now, you may, no, I'll just say this. It's it's an opinion. I think it's real. Um, No two human beings are completely compatible. All right, so if, if you're in love and you say you found the one, no. You found someone you really are attracted to emotionally, spiritually, physically, but you are not entirely compatible. All right, I've been married for 12 years. We are madly in love. We are not completely compatible. All right? We have many, many moments where we are just off. We are not clicking. But we've, we have a rugged commitment to one another. All right, so when you, and this, this, now this goes outside of marital relationships. This goes for any, any relationship. Anybody who is in your sphere, this is what it means to love your enemy. This is what it means to love people who annoy you. It's out of your mind. You can, it's like I can't even stand being around them. Love them anyway. A rugged commitment, a covenant relationship. Anybody can love someone they like. That's a piece of cake. Loving someone you don't like, that's, to, that's a challenge. That's where you need someone outside of yourself to show you how to do that. And that's where we have Christ, a rugged commitment to humanity. And it takes a humbled and mature Christ follower to love someone you don't like. So think about this in your own sphere. Who's, um, who in your sphere has wronged you or annoys you? And you think, have I loved them well? Remember, it's not a contractual relationship. It's not like, well, they haven't done this or this or, that, or they did this to me. It's not a contractual relationship. You love anyway. So who in your sphere do you need to love better? Do you have a better, a rugged commitment to? How can you love them better? All right, number two, a rugged commitment means to be with. So Emmanuel is a word that describes Christ in Hebrew. It, it literally translates God with us. So God became one of us, with us, present with us. This is the principle of presence, to be with someone, to love someone, to be with them. This is simple. Who, need, who do you need to be with more often? How can you carve out some margin in order to be with some people that are really on your heart and your mind and just be present with them? Or if you're present with people, how can you be more engaged in the moment? How can you be present? Do you need to put the phone away, the laptop? If you're a parent, this is you know, uh, a common struggle with parents is how, do you, how are you going to be entirely present with your children in that moment? That's a covenant relationship, is to be physically, spiritually, emotionally with them and to create time for that. Number three, it means uh, to have a rugged commitment to be for someone. This is the principle of advocacy. It means you advocate for them. You're their fan. You're their cheerleader. You support them. You root them on. Who do you need to be for? Who is in your life right now that just needs support 
and someone to cheer them on, to encourage them, to affirm them. That's a covenant relationship. How can you exhibit that to them? All right, if you've never heard of the five love languages, I would Google that, check that out, and think about there's different ways to love people. Some people like getting a gift. Some people like an encouraging note. Some people like quality time. All right, I'm a words of affirmation person. That's my love language. So if you want to love me better, words of affirmation. There's your tip. All right. Carrie, my wife, is really good at that. Number four, a rugged commitment to be unto. So the word unto, this means the principle of direction. This is challenging. If you think the first three are tough, this is the hardest one, I think. And this is a progressive order. You don't jump around. This is like you go through this. Kind of different levels of covenant relationship here. All right, this is a transforming love. Meaning, if you're in relationship with this person... It is going to transform you, and it's going to transform them. You need to change, whether you believe that or not. We need to change. So when you're in a relationship with others, God designed covenant relationships to change the people that are involved, to restore you, to heal you, to transform you. That is what it means to be unto each other. So you're influencing them. They're influencing you. You're being transformed by them. They are transforming you. So think about your most important relationships, your most intimate connections. Are you allowing those relationships to transform you? In the kingdom, that is how relationship works. And a lot of people refuse that, that step four right there. They kind of like push back on that because there's pride. I'm good. I like the way I'm wired. That's why C.S. Lewis is called pride the great sin. Because you can't fully love if you've got pride in the way. If you can't change, if you can't admit, I need to be transformed and changed continually. The journey never ends in the kingdom. That's how we roll in the kingdom of Christ. So that's what pro-life looks like. It's a completely different way of living. It can't be legislated. It can't be controlled. It only happens by following Christ and joining the story that he is writing for humanity. He's like an artist painting and he's trying to paint you into the story. And that make you part of the narrative. And it's a choice. It's an option. I happen to be pretty biased. And I think it's a pretty good option for living. For both me and other people. So I want to put that list back up on the screen. Haven't made everybody uncomfortable enough yet. So leave that up there. And look at that. Because I can talk about the practical aspects of what it's like to live in relationship and to be pro-life. But unless our theology is informing our methodology, there's going to be problems. So if we have a misunderstanding of theology, we all do, none of us have it nailed, Um, but if something's missing in our pro-life theology, so if you look at that list, and there's a few things on there that you don't agree with, obviously my opinion is you're wrong, but you can disagree with me, but if I'm right, and that is a complete list, having a a growing understanding of what pro-life theology looks like is going to increase your ability to love other people. It's proportional. So the less complete picture of love and humanity and and, uh, what it means to be pro-life that we have, the less we're going to be able to love people. They go go together. So that's why I think we should dwell on that and let it challenge us and think about where do I need to, maybe, maybe my thinking needs to shift on something, because I can't, th- I'm into theology, I'm a pastor, 
I like this stuff. I think it's important. Um, I can't emphasize it enough because uh, the deeper that you journey into the kingdom of God, the less conservative you're going to be. The deeper you journey into the kingdom of God, the less liberal you're going to be. The deeper you journey into the kingdom of God, the less American you're going to be. It is going to tear away everything except for Christ. Let it happen. All right, it's going to be uncomfortable. There's going to be points of tension. But let him strip away everything else. Jesus, if you see this, you'll see it all throughout Scripture. He is constantly asking his followers, what are you willing to leave behind? All the time. He, and he, fi he finds this, the, the, the spot. Right, the rich young man, go sell everything and give it to the poor. And the guy's like, I'm out. I can't handle that. What's Jesus asking you to leave behind? That's, that's what it means to be. That, that is the essence of discipleship. And that is all we are about around here. Jesus said, go and make disciples. A disciple means to be a student, a follower. We're students and followers of Jesus because we think he's the best person to follow. Amen. So that's what it means. And that is everything we're about at Restore. Um, we are, that is uh, all we care about is, this, is just being disciples, being students and followers of Jesus. It is our mission. It is our passion. It is what keeps me awake at night. And these moments of tension, of figuring out what is, how can I have a more holistic understanding of who Christ is and how is that going to impact my life? It's this continual journey. It's why we do everything individually. It's why we do everything it restores to be a follower of Jesus. And I mean, my card's on the table. Uh, when I show that, that tweet by, by Brian of all these pro-life things, I understand how hot those different topics are and how there may be disagreement on them. But again, walking into the kingdom of Christ is taking the road less traveled. It is not worn. It is very narrow. It is not popular. Right. All right. It is radically countercultural. Uh, and so to close today, rather than pray, uh, I'm going to read one of my all-time favorite poems by Robert Frost. Uh, because I think it adequately describes what it looks like to travel the discipleship journey. It's called The Road Not Taken. <clears throat> Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I, should, I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. <laughs>